Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Monday, September 19th, 2022. It's been 3,124 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 208 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. As we always do, let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, our assessment that Ukraine had entered an operational pause was accurate, and a new counteroffensive phase will be starting soon. Second, Russian attempts to stealth mobilize more troops are almost certain to fail, as the efforts are too little too late, and recruitment programs are driven by desperation, not patriotism. Third, we maintain the continued Russian offensive on Bakhmut Solidar is pointless and will not provide a tactical or strategic victory. Fourth, we maintain our assessment that as the situation for Russian troops in Kherson worsens due to supply issues and conditions, forces will seek to surrender. Fifth, we maintain our assessment that the Russian military in Ukraine is combat-destroyed, and the Russian military has no meaningful way to respond to the ongoing collapse with their available resources. And finally, there is now a small but noteworthy risk that as the, quote, special military operation fails, the Putin regime will be at risk of political upheaval that could result in government changes. It's Monday, so we're going to check in with both belligerents' objectives as we do our regional updates. We'll start, of course, with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv, where the Russian objective is to hold existing defensive lines, protect remaining lines of communication called locks, those are supply lines, defend Kherson, prevent envelopment on the western side of the Dnipro River, and restrict insurgent activity. The Ukrainian objective is to liberate the Kherson Oblast west of the Dnipro River and push Russian forces back far enough to end multiple launch rocket system, or MLRS, attacks on Mykolaiv and Kriviri. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky confirmed that Ukrainian forces are in an operational pause to resupply, reconstitute, and prepare for the next phase of their offensive operations. Operational security remains very tight, and pro-Russian accounts reported very little about Kherson today. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, and Operational Command South, or OCS, 
reported that Russian troops attempted to advance into recently liberated Pravdine and were unsuccessful. The Russian Ministry of Defense reported that Ukrainian forces attempted to advance into Miroliobivka and were unsuccessful, but they didn't specify if this was in Kherson or Mykolaiv. Pravdine and Miroliobivka are adjacent, so we think it's a safe assumption that both belligerents fought for control of the area and the line of conflict didn't change. Based on the area's hydrology, the floodwaters from Kriviri have likely crested around the Ukrainian pontoon bridges, with unconfirmed reports that one was washed away. The crest will be less significant as it passes through the Russian wet crossings, with the biggest impact likely hitting today or tomorrow. This very well may have contributed to the reduced operational tempo. Both belligerents reported that their enemy was moving reinforcements up and preparing defenses, but both were nonspecific in their claims. The Russian Ministry of Defense and mill bloggers claim that the gun battle in Kherson was a counter-sabotage operation, but were short on pictures, videos, and statements. The Ukrainian Struggle Center and OCS warned that Russia was planning false flag attacks between September 17th and 20th and for civilians to stay away from crowded spaces and population centers. The Ukrainian Air Force flew 11 ground support missions, and ground forces carried out 200 fire missions. Russian command posts in Bereslav and Kherson were hit by artillery or rockets, along with an air defense system and electronics warfare station in Kherson. Russian troops and equipment waiting to cross the Dnipro in Lvov were attacked by rockets fired by HIMARS, and a pontoon crossing near Novokokhovka was destroyed. At the time of recording, multiple targets were hit again in Novokokhovka, but there wasn't information on damage or Russian casualties. Rockets fired by HIMARS landed near Jubilini Park in Kherson, with pro-Russian accounts claiming a humanitarian aid center was targeted. Enerhoatom and President Zelensky accused the Russian military of intentionally firing missiles at the southern Ukraine nuclear power plant. Missiles landed about 300 meters from the reactor complex, and windows were blown out from the shockwave. The facility, which is located in Yuznukrainsk, has three reactors and the capacity to generate 2,850 megawatts. There were no reports of radiation leaks or injuries. At the time of recording, Enerhoatom had not yet provided a status update on the reactors. Russia fired S-300 air defense missiles at ground targets in Mykolaiv. One missile landed in the yard of a private home, destroying an outbuilding, creating a massive crater, and badly damaging the home itself. Incredibly, no one was injured. Our assessment in Kherson and Mykolaiv is unchanged from September 11th. To recap, and make completely clear, Kherson was not a feint or a deception for the Kharkiv offensive. The Russian Ministry of Defense was already brought to a state of combat destroyed in early July after capturing Luhansk Oblast, and their offensive lost momentum into early August. The Russian Ministry of Defense would have deployed its reserve forces somewhere, and another axis would have ended up collapsing. Trapping 25 to 35,000 troops west of the Dnipro River limits Russian options. Even if all the bridges and railroad lines were available, it would have taken days to redeploy their reserves back into the Kharkiv Oblast, even under the best circumstances.
The Kherson counteroffensive is taking longer and is more difficult because the terrain heavily favors the defender and Russian tactics and military doctrine. We had assessed on July 28th that progress would start slow in Kherson and accelerate as Russian forces are worn down and supplies become scarce. Ukraine is seeking victory in Kherson, but unlike Kharkiv, the strategy goes beyond kinetic warfare. The Russian Ministry of Defense deployed an additional 1,300 Chechen troops across the Dnipro, indicating that the Kremlin doesn't believe the counteroffensive is a feint. Ukrainian military training for territorial guards was only two weeks at the start of the war. Training being led by NATO is now five weeks, and territorial guard forces are increasingly being rotated out on other fronts to reconstitute. We have previously documented how the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics, or LNR and DNR, use forced conscripts with one week of training. We've also documented the one to two weeks of training given to volunteer units of the Russian Armed Forces, the private military company, or PMC Wagner Group recruits, and the neo-Nazi terrorist organizations, the Imperial Legion and ENOT Corps. It is well documented that Russian replacement forces have been issued bolt-action rifles from World War II, SSH-68 steel helmets that offer no ballistic protection, and zero body armor. Losses will be heavy in a counteroffensive, as we previously assessed on July 28th, and progress will start slowly. There are continued indications that Russian forces are experiencing supply issues and Ukrainian artillery capabilities in Kherson are close to parity with far greater accuracy. Ukrainian forces are making steady, methodical progress in three directions, and Ukraine has established at least three wet crossings. Ukrainian forces have advanced up to 18 kilometers in some areas, which will require an operational pause to reinforce G-locks, remember those are supply lines, and prevent becoming overextended. We maintain that Ukraine is not seeking a kinetic victory, but intends to starve Russian forces of supplies. It is essential to recognize that 25,000 Russian troops are in a technical encirclement west of the Dnipro River. Russian military doctrine is heavily dependent on artillery fire. Consumption of ammunition, fuel, medicine, and spare parts is unsustainable due to the destroyed G-locks. Ukrainian soldiers report that Russian forces are throwing, quote, everything they have against their advances. Additionally, any Russian position abandoned with equipment or ammunition left behind can almost immediately be put into service by Ukraine. It could take days, weeks, or even months for Russian supplies to become exhausted, but at some point, they will run out of resources if they don't regain control of the bridges and repair them. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. The Russian objective is to interdict personnel and equipment assembling for a counteroffensive, break civilian will with continued terror attacks, and turn popular opinion against Ukraine by terrorizing the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The Ukrainian objective is to prevent further Russian advances, exploit weaknesses on the line of conflict, and prepare area civilian populations for the possibility of a nuclear accident. The situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant remains unchanged, and the Russian Ministry of Defense did not claim that there was shelling or attacks around the plant. 
An unspecified village near Zaporizhia was hit by an S-300 anti-aircraft missile used for ground attack. The blast left a giant crater, and one person was injured. Valentin Reznichenko, Dnipropetrovsk Oblast's administrative and military governor, reported that Nikopol, Pokrovsk, and Chervonohyorivka were attacked by grad rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS. Russian forces used flechettes on Nikopol, launched from special shells fired by 152mm D-20 artillery. We'll speak more on that in the War Crimes and Human Rights segment. Nikopol was hit for a second time with up to 40 grad rockets, damaging up to 10 homes and destroying cars. No one was injured in the second attack. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southern Zaporizhia. The Russian objective is to set conditions for an offensive to capture northern Zaporizhia, defend the existing line of conflict, and end the insurrection that has expanded from Melitopol to most of the occupied territory. The Ukrainian objective is to fix Russian assets in place to prevent redeployment, defend the existing line of conflict while finding and exploiting weaknesses, destroy troop concentrations and command and control sites, interdict supplies and disrupt logistics, and support and expand the insurrection in occupied territories. Fighting is ongoing in certain areas, but there has been a request to maintain operational security. Otherwise, there was only sporadic artillery fire along the line of conflict, from the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border to Huliapola to Orekhiv to mali Sherbaki. The Ukrainian Air Force continued to suppress and destroy enemy air defenses across the region and provided close air support for Ukrainian troops. The video we shared yesterday showing the aftermath of a HIMARS strike on a hangar full of Russian military equipment is authentic. An IED in a downtown Melitopol trash can exploded, with insurgents and Russian forces trading accusations. Both sides agree that Denis Stefankov, a police officer now collaborating with Russian occupation forces, was the target, and that he was uninjured in the attack. Insurgents claim the FSB targeted him as part of a house-cleaning exercise to hide war crimes, and Russian state media claimed he was the target of insurgents due to his ongoing police work. Moving on to southwestern Donetsk, the Russian objective here is to maintain existing defensive lines, push Ukrainian forces out of artillery range of Donetsk City, and bring the insurrection across southwestern Donetsk under control. The Ukrainian objective is to lock Russian military assets in place, defend the existing line of conflict while finding and exploiting weaknesses, destroy troop concentrations and command and control sites, and interdict supplies and disrupt logistics. Donetsk People's Republic, that's DNR militia, did not make any reports about fighting today. They released a video that was filmed earlier in the week based on weather conditions, showing a single artillery strike on a Ukrainian position on the E-50 ring road by, you guessed it, Pisky. However, one shell landing and three soldiers running do not make a battle. Southwest of Donetsk, positional battles were fought in Marinka and Novomikhailivka. A Russian Ka-52 Alligator-class attack helicopter was confirmed shot down near Rivnopil. The aircraft was downed significantly behind the current line of conflict, raising questions on whether Ukraine is advancing south from Velika Novosilka, 
or east from Novopil. Fun fact, almost 25% of all confirmed Russian Ka-52 helicopters shot down in Ukraine have been knocked out of the sky around Rivnopil. There was artillery fire on the line of conflict from New York to Velika Novosilka, with heavy artillery concentrated on Marinka. The DNR militia tried to out-tick-tock the Chechens with their very own fake combat video. But really, we can only give this one two out of five stars. The production value was terrible, and a machine gun was bucking so hard that anything downrange was likely safer than the people filming the video. In Bakhmut, the Russian objective is... still really unclear. We have no idea what they're trying to achieve here. The Ukrainian objective, though, is to defend Bakhmut Solidar while managing equipment and personnel losses, minimize civilian casualties, and defend GLOCs. Let's get this over with, because there are really only so many ways that the same report can be rewritten to make it interesting. If PMC Wagner Group has pushed deep into Bakhmut, they aren't there anymore. Russian artillery absolutely devastated the city's eastern edge, just west of the highway and where the Ukrainian strongholds are located. Ukraine reported positional fighting occurred after the barrage. Wagner also continued their attempts to advance into Vesela Dulina, Odradivka, and Mykolaivka Drucha without success. Russian forces shelled Zaitseve, the one south of Bakhmut, and Mayorsk, and it appears the Kadyrovites with the 141st Akhmat took the day off. Our assessment in Bakhmut is unchanged from August 25th. We recapped it on Thursday's episode around minute 14. In northeast Donetsk and Luhansk, the Russian objective is to push back the Ukrainian counteroffensive, protect the flank of retreating Russian forces from the Izum Axis, control insurgency, and integrate captured territory into Russia. The Ukrainian objective is to break Russian defensive lines, prevent the retreat of Russian soldiers from Izum, make opportunistic territorial gains, support insurgents, and interdict supplies. Neither belligerent reported significant fighting in Luhansk. Positional fighting continues outside of Lehman and Yampil, with reports that artillery was intensifying around Lehman and the situation on the Lehman Zarichnyi lock was deteriorating. A usually reliable source made a questionable claim that Russian and proxy forces in Lehman are now encircled. Our Week in Review episode yesterday went in-depth on all the G-locks around Lehman and why the city has become so important. In our assessment, Lehman is not encircled or in a technical encirclement, but driving in and out is likely not a fun experience anymore. Serhi Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that the offensive to liberate Luhansk would not begin until Lehman is liberated. Fighting for total control of Rupci continued while Oleksandrivka and Krimki were liberated. There are continued claims that Ukraine was advancing from Bilohorivka in Luhansk and had partial or complete control of Zolotarivka and the Verknokomyanka oil refinery. Still, no pictures or videos have been released to support those claims. There also continue to be claims of Ukrainian troops spotted within Lysychansk. In our assessment, it is possible and even likely that special operation forces are operating on the city's outskirts, 
and scouting Russian positions, defenses, and possible routes. Haidai also claimed that the Saturday rocket attack using HIMARS in Svatov killed 180 to 200 Russian troops staying at a hotel adjacent to the bus station. Rockets fired from HIMARS destroyed a Russian base and barracks in Stakhanov, Kadyivka. There wasn't information on casualties. Some quick assessment here. Ukraine has long established a rule that troops cannot congregate in large numbers in buildings and barracks. We are at a complete loss as to why Russian troops have not adopted a similar strategy after three months of HIMARS strikes across Ukraine. In Slovyansk, Russian forces targeted the Slovyansk thermal power plant with S-300 anti-aircraft missiles and caused heavy damage to the administrative building. Our assessment here? We maintain the Russian occupation of most of Luhansk is now at risk of collapsing with the fall of the Izum Axis and Ukrainian troops actively operating across the Seversky Donetsk River. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Moving on to the Kharkiv region, the Russian objective is to retreat and minimize casualties, prevent Ukrainian forces from advancing from their bridgeheads on the east bank of the Oskil River, and launch terror attacks on civilians in an attempt to break morale. The Ukrainian objective is to liberate all of Kharkiv Oblast, sever G-locks into Luhansk, protect civilian lives, and defend the Ukrainian border. Ukrainian forces were starting to advance south from Kupyansk and fighting with Russian forces on the east bank of the Oskil. Fighting near Yadova destroyed 15 Russian tanks, according to Ukrainian officials. With Yadova liberated, administrators are moving forward to stabilize Sviatohirsk, where up to 500 people remain at the Sviatohirsk cave monastery and have been there since occupation under religious sanctuary rules. To quote Shakespeare, so shines a good deed in a weary world. Russian forces apparently honored the ancient tradition of sanctuary, and some evacuations were possible even during occupation. Russian forces have stepped up artillery strikes on many recently liberated settlements along the Russian-Ukraine border, including Hoptivka, Strilicha, Kozacha-Lopen, and Vovchansk. Ukrainian forces continue to discover abandoned Russian equipment, tanks, and ammunition. An abandoned repair depot was located, with up to 200 military vehicles with only light to moderate damage. To the north, in the Chirniev and Sumy region, the Hromada of Bilopilia was shelled from across the Russian border— according to Dmitry Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast Administrative and Military Governor. There is more information in the War Crimes and Human Rights segment. A line of tornadic supercell thunderstorms passed through Sumy, causing major damage in Burinje. One person was killed and eight wounded, with power knocked out to 10,000 people, and the roofs ripped off more than 20 homes. A gas station and other commercial buildings were also damaged. On the Russian front, multiple tornadoes likely ripped through the Kursk Oblast, including Kursk, Elgov, and Alhovka. Two people were killed, including a university student at the Kursk Autotechnical College, 
who is impaled by flying debris inside their dorm. Russia typically records two to four tornadoes a year, but climate change has increased the development of supercell thunderstorms. Multiple videos showed at least two distinct tornadoes, including a rare nighttime one. Let's move on to developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Ukrainian forces captured an intact Russian T-90M main battle tank, or MBT, the most advanced tank fielded by the Russian army. The T-90M had thrown a track and was left behind. It is covered in radar-resistant and thermal-obscuring material and has the most modern main gun sight in the Russian inventory. The team at Langley is going to love this. The Russian Ministry of Defense has allegedly issued a, quote, no-retreat order and declared that Russian troops are to hold their current positions at all costs. In the dark days of World War II, Stalin issued a similar order, but this won't solve the challenges the Kremlin is ignoring, such as a lack of trained personnel, equipment, and heavy weapons, and a growing reliance on proxy forces motivated by greed, fear, or a get-out-of-jail-free card. In a stunning video, even for our favorite FSB colonel, war criminal, and Kremlin pariah, Igor Gherkin Strelkov made his strongest declaration yet against the Kremlin. Strelkov directly blamed President Putin for the collapse of the Russian army, for not taking the necessary steps to win, and predicted that Putin would be violently overthrown in a coup. Some assessment here? The last time we wrote that Strelkov had probably crossed a bridge too far, he was detained less than 24 hours later while trying to travel into Ukraine. The Kremlin has allowed him to be a fake dissident to create the illusion that outspoken voices have a place at the table. But these most recent comments are very likely another bridge too far. The United Nations honored a Ukrainian request to withdraw from a peacekeeping mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Ukrainian forces have been in the African nation for a decade, and the last members of the force withdrew on Sunday. Let's talk about Russian mobilization and military status. The Russian Ministry of Defense is now stamping the military ID of those who refuse to participate in the special military operation as deserters. The stamp reads, quote, Deserter. Refuse to perform a combat mission. Prone to betrayal. End quote. Under Russian law, refusing to fight under a special military operation is not desertion, and only a Russian court can convict someone of the crime. Farewell, Third Army Corps. We barely knew you. Units of the all-volunteer Russian Third Army Corps were rushed into Kharkiv to shore up the defense, but suffered heavy losses before even reaching the battlefield when their convoys were targeted. The surviving units had little to no impact, and they joined the retreat, leaving much of their equipment behind. The remnants of the force, which never fully formed in the first place, have been deployed in Donetsk and Zaporizhia. According to Forbes, the Russian Ministry of Defense has started the paperwork to create the all-volunteer Fourth Army Corps. A Russian military officer claimed that the average life expectancy for a Russian soldier on some fronts is just one to three weeks, and casualties can't be replaced fast enough. 
He also repeated the claim that wounded soldiers no longer get bonus payouts for newly defined, quote, light wounds, such as bullet and shrapnel in the arms and legs. I'm sure it's fine. They're just mildly wounded. Six members of the Human Rights Council of the Russian Federation have requested Prosecutor General Igor Krasnov to explain why convicts who have not yet fully served their sentences are allowed to fight in Ukraine. Under Russian law, the only grounds for releasing a prisoner who has not yet finished serving their sentence are pardon by the decree of the President of the Russian Federation, amnesty by the resolution of the State Duma, which is the Russian parliament, or parole issued in a court decision. The convoy of Chechen volunteer soldiers last seen in Grozny in their fleet of pickup trucks has crossed over into Ukraine. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is graphic detail in today's report, and if you're sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. The attack on the southern Ukraine nuclear power plant violates Article 56 of the Geneva Convention and could be construed as a war crime. The United Nations Secretary General has urged Ukraine and Russia to immediately transfer prisoners of war in a, quote, all-for-all exchange. There are significant concerns about the treatment of Ukrainian POWs, the growing number of Russian POWs Ukraine recently captured, and their capacity to process them. In the Ukrainian village of Strilicha, two hospital employees were attacked by a Russian infantry fighting vehicle that crossed the international border. The car was destroyed and the women were killed. The bodies were found beheaded, still seated in the car. It's unclear from the video if the women had their heads taken as trophies or if their heads exploded after being hit by large-caliber rounds. The Sri Lankan nationals rescued earlier this week from a basement in Vovchansk were tortured and abused while in Russian custody. The six men and one woman reported that when the war started, they were afraid and decided to hide instead of attempting to evacuate. They tried to walk to Kharkiv in May, but were stopped at the first Russian checkpoint. They were bound, bags were put over their heads, and they were taken to a prison in Vovchansk. There, they were conscripted into forced labor and tortured, including having their toenails torn out, and the woman was held in solitary confinement for two months. None of their captors spoke English, so they never understood what the Russians wanted or why they were being tortured. However, during the torture sessions, the Russians knew one English word, money, which they repeated over and over again. After the Russians left, they attempted to walk to Kharkiv again. A hotel guard sheltered them and notified Ukrainian authorities. A spokesperson of Sri Lanka's Ministry of Foreign Affairs said the Colombo government was in close communication with Ukrainian officials. Grad rocket attacks in the Dnipropetrovsk oblast killed two and wounded three more. Chervonohriorivka, located between Nikopol and Markhanets, was devastated due to the attack. Over three dozen homes were damaged or destroyed. The attack also destroyed a bus stop, cars, power lines, natural gas pipelines, and 320 solar panels. In what could be devastating news, Pavlo Kirilenko, head of the Donetsk Oblast Military Administration, 
reported three civilians were killed by Russian shelling, including one in recently liberated Bohorodichne. Bohorodichne had been the scene of intense fighting for weeks before the Ukrainian counteroffensive, and the village of 750 was down to only two residents, a 58-year-old man and his 92-year-old mother. The pair were highlighted in an earlier situation report after reporters from France 24 interviewed them about life under occupation. In the village of Volfine in the Sumy Oblast, a Russian mortar attack killed a town resident and tore through a farm, killing a hundred pigs and a horse and destroying two granaries and a water tower. The settlement sits on the Russian border east of the Russian town of Tietkino, where a firebase launches attacks across the border daily. Two civilians were killed in Vulidar, Donetsk, due to Russian shelling. In geopolitical news, Poland, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania have closed the border to all Russian nationals, with no exceptions. Even if Russian nationals attempt to enter the countries through the Schengen state, their access will be denied at the border. And in economic news, President Putin continued to weaponize energy less than 48 hours after he assured other world leaders that he understood this wasn't a favorable tactic on the world stage. Despite repeatedly declaring that sanctions are not harming the Russian Federation, he once again set conditions attached to removing sanctions, saying at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in Uzbekistan, quote, The bottom line is if you have an urge, if it's so hard for you, just lift the sanctions on Nord Stream 2, which is 55 billion cubic meters of gas per year. Just push the button, and everything will get going. End quote. The ruble opened at 60 for one U.S. dollar, holding steady from last week. Oil prices opened lower today, with WTI crude trading around $83 a barrel and Brent at $89 a barrel. RBOB wholesale gasoline on the spot market is expected to open at $2.35 a gallon, or $0.62 a liter. Gasoline is now down $1.92 a gallon from its June 9th peak. Chicago SRW wheat futures will open lower this morning at $8.43 a bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.